Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's clear, I think, in what we've read from John's Gospel, it's very clear throughout the Gospel of Matthew that the kingship of Jesus is important in every aspect of his life and now his death. It matters that Jesus was king. It matters as we think about the cross that we recognize that a king was crucified on the cross. It's clear in Matthew's Gospel that the death of Jesus is inseparable from his kingship. In chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? The soldiers, when they mock Jesus, put a crown of thorns on his head, and they say, hail, king of the Jews. They clothe him like a king. They bow before him as if he were a king. Mocking him, they treat him like a king. Pilate brings him out before the people in his purple robe and presents them and says, Behold, the king of the Jews. Even the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, as they mock Jesus on the cross, in Matthew's gospel say something astonishing. They say, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. As you can see in John's gospel, this point is only sharpened. From Pilate's declaration, behold your king, to his almost trolling of the crowd when he asked, shall I crucify your king? The kingship of Jesus is on everyone's lips. He provokes the chief priests to answer those incriminating words, we have no king but Caesar. The greatest proclamation, though, of the kingship of Jesus, I think, comes in the words that are written and displayed on the cross. That written declaration that's on the cross, which in Matthew's gospel is explained. He gives us the reason why these words are posted there. He says, over his head they put the charge against him. It reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The reason it's there is because the tradition was when a prisoner was executed publicly, on display before everyone, you needed to announce his crime so that when people saw what it was that was happening to him, they also knew why it was happening. They understood the reason for his death. We don't really do public execution any longer, but actually that fell out of favor not very long ago. And the reason for public execution wasn't sheer brutality. It was an object lesson. The reason that you shamed and executed criminals in public before the people was as an example to the others that they wouldn't imitate 
those crimes. And so it was important for them to know why it was that this person was being executed. But here, the mocking of Jesus goes a little too far for the priests to feel comfortable because the sign is there, posted above Jesus' head, and John says people see it. It's there in three different languages, right by the city, so that many people are witnessing this, and the leaders become uncomfortable, and they go to Pilate and they ask for revisions. They'd like to see him qualify these words so that they're not misunderstood, so that people understand he's being executed because he said he was the king of the Jews, not because he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate famously quips, what I have written, I have written. If Pilate was an internet meme, those cool dark glasses would come over his eyes at that moment. He would drop the microphone And yet it's hard to admire a man who defies people in small things as they coerce him into doing what he knows to be a great injustice. As we contemplate the words nailed to the cross, I want to think about two things, the irony of that charge and also the true meaning of that charge. Throughout the account of Jesus' crucifixion, there are deep ironies. It's not an accident that all of the mockery is chronicled as faithfully as it is because John knows and Matthew knows that it's really strange and and it, it condemns the people who are mocking Jesus. The fact that in doing it, it, it has the trappings of kingship, right? The mockery has a theme. The theme is Jesus's kingship. It's unwitting, but in the scenes that were displayed, we actually see the enemies of Jesus acknowledging his authority, treating him mockingly as if he were a king. It's the enemies of Jesus who crown him. It is the enemies of Jesus who proclaim him king. It is the enemies of Jesus who bow before him And in the cross, ironically, it is the enemies of Jesus who lift him up so that everyone can behold him. But no irony in this account is more profound than the charge itself. Because the charge asks a question and answers it. The reason that the charge is there is because people want to know why. They want to know why this man is being crucified. Why does this man have to die? And the charge answers the question. He has to die because he is the king. He must die because he is the king. That charge proclaims the kingship of Jesus. And that scene presents Jesus to the people as king. It's a proclamation of his kingship so definite that the chief priests don't like it. That they're uncomfortable with the wording. They see this isn't ironic anymore. We've written this in such a way that it looks as if we're saying he is who he claims 
to be. They can't pretend not to notice that that's what's going on. That's why they're so insistent on Pilate changing it. The king is proclaimed, but he's also presented to the people. If you think about the moment of the cross, if you think about that scene which is immortalized, that scene which even though none of us were there, all of us can picture because we've seen a thousand different pictures of that moment, of that cross. In that image is the presentation of the king. It's a kind of icon to his majesty. If you're a king or a great ruler, you want to be presented at your best. Most great men are not like Oliver Cromwell, who when his painting was painted, insisted that he be depicted warts and all. Most proud rulers are happy to have the airbrushed version of them. When the Emperor Napoleon is painted by David crossing the Alps on his white stallion, Napoleon is not concerned that the scene does not appear to be very realistic. It's not important that it be realistic. It's important that it be heroic. It's important that it capture that spirit of victory. Conquerors want to be depicted in their moment of triumph. In the crucifixion, Jesus is depicted for us in his moment of triumph. This is the battle that he's come to wage and to win. And in the cross, we see him victorious. And that's ironic, too. In the same way that in the story of the Iliad, the Trojans have to tear down their own walls in order to bring the the horse into the city, to bring the destruction inside the heart of their city. Here, the enemies of Jesus are the ones who've done this. It is the enemies of Jesus who have orchestrated his triumph. They are the ones who have brought him up on charges. They are the ones who have falsely condemned him. They are the ones who have crucified him. And in the cross, he is victorious. As we behold the cross, we are witnesses to Christ's victory. That perhaps is the true meaning of that charge, that declaration of his kingship. As we behold the cross, we see Jesus winning his battle. Now, the accusation of his crime that was affixed to the cross is actually the indictment for your crime and mine. It is actually the indictment for our sin. If you read Paul's explanation in Colossians 2, Paul makes this very clear as he speaks about the significance of what Jesus did at the cross. He references that accusation that was nailed to the cross. He writes in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, 
nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So for Paul, the cross is Jesus' great triumph. And in that triumph, he does certain things which Paul lists for us. First and foremost, he forgave us, Paul says. Note the tense of that verb. He forgave us at the cross. He doesn't say he will forgive us. He does not say he might forgive us. He says he has forgiven us. It's something that has already happened. It happened at the cross. We have been forgiven. This is a work that is completed. This is a triumph that is already won. But how? How did he do it? How did he achieve this victory? Because, of course, the cross looks like defeat. It looks like he lost. So how can you say that in that moment he won a victory? Well, here's how he did it. Paul says he forgave us by canceling the debt of sin. That's what he did at the cross. He canceled the debt of sin. There was a debt or a penalty that accrued to us because of our sin. Something had to be done. Some answer for the problem of sin. Jesus canceled that debt. Jesus did away with it. There's nothing left to pay. You are no longer under any debt or obligation. There is no longer any charge that you have to answer because it has been canceled by Christ at the cross. In what action? Well, Paul uses a metaphor here, but it's a very apt one. Right? He talks about that, that debt of sin, that record with its legal demands, and he says that the means of its cancellation was Christ nailing it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. He took the record of what was owed and he nailed it to the cross. In other words, he paid it through what he did at the cross. He canceled the debt by paying it, by fulfilling it. That charge has been answered. That indictment has been nailed to the cross, and Jesus, in dying on the cross under that indictment, has paid the debt for our sins. And note his death has actually paid the price, not made it possible that that price might be paid, but has actually done it. It has been accomplished. So that that indictment, Paul can say, has been set aside. It's been done away with. Not that it might be or it could be on some condition. Not that hopefully it will be if you do your part. It has been set aside as it has been nailed to the cross. That's the triumph of the cross. And as we contemplate Jesus on the cross, let us always contemplate what it is that he accomplished there. That victory had consequences, and Paul enumerates those as well. He says there are two things that happened because of Christ's triumph at the cross. First, he says, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. 
Again, not that he will. Not that he might. Not that hopefully one day he will, but that he has done this. He has disarmed them. If Satan beforehand was bound, having been bound, Jesus has taken out of his hands the weapons that he once used against us. He has been disarmed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only that, those rulers and authorities in the height of irony have been put to open shame. If there's a reason why we sometimes grow uncomfortable at the thought of the cross and what happened there, if we think about the humiliation of Christ, what he endured and what he suffered, there's a part of us that wants to turn away from that reality because of the shame of it. It's a natural response for all of us. We don't like to see other people put to shame. It's natural to turn away from a spectacle like that, to see another human being abased and degraded, put down like that. We naturally turn away. And when we think about the cross, we think about the humiliation that Christ willingly endured on our behalf. And all that's true. And yet, in some sense, as he looks at the cross, what Paul sees is not the shame of Jesus, but the shame of his enemies. That in that moment, at his greatest humiliation, as he lowered himself to an unimaginable depth and endured unimaginable pain, in that moment, he wasn't shamed. There was no shame attaching to our Lord Jesus. Instead, in his triumph, he put those rulers and authorities to open shame. And savor the irony of that. At the cross, they didn't put Jesus to shame. He put them to shame. His greatest humiliation was actually the final victory over sin and death. You probably don't know this, but this series of sermons over the course of Holy Week has a title And it comes from that story from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I quoted earlier on, that famous moment when Mr. Beaver is is giving reassurance about meeting Aslan and saying, no, he's not safe, but he's good. Because what he says after that is what's been kind of in my head. He says he's not safe, but he's good. And then he adds, he's the king, I tell you. That insistence, that the, I tell you, is what has made this the title of this sermon series for me, because it's what I hope that all of these sermons will do for us as we think about Jesus here on the cross, as we think about him in his suffering, as we think about him as he endures the events of this very dark Good Friday. Remember that voice. He's the king, I tell you. It's the king on the cross. It is the king who died for us. It is the king who triumphed. And never forget that Jesus Christ is king. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.